Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The human experience is getting intimate as we traverse the realms of yogic enlightenment, tantra, yoga, and relationships as we welcome back my guest, Dr. Stuart Savatsky. Stuart, my good sir, welcome back to HXP. Thank you, Xavier. It's great to be back. Stuart, it's, it's been nearly a year since we, we spoke, and I, I can't believe the the response that we've gotten from our last conversation, it's actually quite surprising to me that so many people identified the aspects of connecting tantra, yoga, chanting, uh, mudras, like all, all of these things that you connect into in this book, sensuality, relationships, gender roles, I mean, all of these things. It, why do you think that people are identifying with this more and more now? I think that uh, the sexual liberation movement, as it called itself, that began in the 60s, uh, it, it didn't know it was over-promising the moon. And uh, over since uh, AIDS hit, which was really tragic, uh, people were shocked. And then as uh, different relationships become, became unwieldy rather than more intimate and connecting, no matter how much more sex people were now free to have without guilt, uh, some good things had been happening in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But I think my book um, had a couple of advantages uh, because of my personal practice of yoga. Uh, I was able to see earlier on, uh, in the, actually in the 70s, that the sexual liberation movement was limited. And mainly it's because uh, uh, my gurus were able to initiate me into an, what, what I have called an inner marriage. And it, which is very poorly translated as celibacy. It's exactly the opposite of what the word sounds like. And so when I was uh, writing, I could infuse descriptions of yoga in ways that no one really had been writing about, but it's completely accurate to the 5,000-year-old tradition. My personal experience, because all of my own erotic energy was going into my yoga practice, my asanas were like an erect penis. My, 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 my asanas were, my, a headstand was an erection of the spine. And back in the 70s when I would teach classes, my students were experiencing their own version of this. And some that did uh, take up this uh, marrying of yoga, they got deeper and deeper into it. But now it's like 40 some years later. And the third edition really of my book, the first but the first edition took probably five years to sell the same number of copies that were sold in the current edition within about three or four months. Yeah. It's because, you know, 20, 18 million people have been getting into yoga. Mm -hmm. And likewise, uh, um, the, the limits of sexual liberation got filled in with Tantra. Nobody would have bought, you know, been interested in a, a male sexual experience that didn't have an orgasm. And right. now men have, have learned that there's a whole new realm when you don't ejaculate. 
So the ground was ready for me to take, uh, really, only 5% of the Indo-Tibetan archive has even been translated into English. So my, my book was able to have a ready audience to learn more. It's brilliant. I think it's in the top 100 of the highest selling, highest ranked books on Amazon for sexuality. Isn't that right? Yeah. Sacred sexuality. It's been in the top 100. It was number 11 um, for weeks. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm able to say things that a, a lot of the more famous people uh, you know, didn't have the background to uh, talk about. Um, yeah. You know, uh, some of my good buddies, uh, David Dita, you know, I've helped him with one of his books. I read one of his manuscripts and, you know, he, he, he isn't reading the Sanskrit. So he's taking people to a certain point that's quite wonderful. And I think I'm able to take them uh, further, uh, it's certainly into Indian Tantra. So our last conversation felt like, for me, almost like a therapy session. I mean, it, it, it felt like I was venting to you and you had all the right answers. And I'm, I'm not sure if people identified with that more or what, but relationships have changed. Uh, and in your book, you, you talk about uh, these, these relationships in physical and mental terms, emotions flowing, uh, pastimes shared. Am I pronouncing this word right? Urdhva Vedas? Yeah, Urdhva Vedas. Urdhva Vedas, yeah. Can you define Urdhva Vedas for, for me, please? Yeah, it just means human potential. Uh, the human potential phrase was coined in the 60s to try to help Western psychology get more positive than Freud in psychiatry. Uh, and so human potential was looking at what, you know, what, what possibilities do we have inside. In uh, Tantra, things get really shaken up because uh, they, they're really pointing to a puberty that happens in the heart and in the brain that's mm -hmm. uh, at least as powerful as the one that happens when we become fertile during our age 12, 13, 14. So uh, in Freud, all of our psychology really ends at uh, the teenage puberty in Freud's thinking for sure. Uh, in fact, he, you know, he says that um, the genital personality it begins when we're fertile and it, it creates what we call the ego that tries to satisfy its desires. And that's pretty much as far as Western psychology has mapped human potential. Then when yoga came and we start getting Sanskrit words like kundalini or enlightenment or uh, beyond the ego, uh, the history is worth noting in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even well into the 90s, uh, the, the mainstream psychology was still rejecting any idea of a, of a post-ego or a non-ego-centered uh, mature state. The, the psychiatry was pathologizing it in their uh, diagnostic manual. We had to, and I was a part of it, had to like change that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of paradigm changing uh, that has happened to allow, uh, what, what I did is I just took it way beyond what's currently being, you know, uh, looked into of uh, this word veritas, but it's well described. So the maturation point is really that early. I mean, through puberty the, or the, or the Vareta, sorry, I'm butchering that word. It begins that early in, in a person's consciousness? Well, you could say that it, you have to look at the moment of conception from a, a more profound way. Uh, and then it quickly gets into the problems of, of when is the 
when is the embryo a, a, a human being or not? And then you're quickly into the abortion uh, uh, dilemma politics. So it's very challenging in, in a quick conversation to say the whole thing has to be rethought. And the seed of the human at the moment of zygote, when the fertilized egg occurs, there's far more going on in that moment than most liberal-minded people think, because mainly because the, 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 the abortion question is wanting, they're wanting to keep it available and it not being a moral problem. But just for starters, the word zygote traces back through Greek to the word yogi in Sanskrit. It's a profound moment in our existence that has a, a, a glow in it that is the beginning of the soul. So without getting too much into it, we, I think we're able to even use common sense. Parents do feel connected to their uh, first couple months of, of their baby. And, and yet the baby too is, or the zygote, uh, has far more potential. It's still very vulnerable, miscarriage, uh, maybe the choice of abortion if, if need be. But uh, when, when we change the maturity of the male mm -hmm. uh, later in life, where the, it becomes an easy part of sexual education that all men in heterosexual uh, uh, environment, as well as any other gender relation, the, the ejaculation is only for conceiving. Something very profound suddenly happens when that is the criteria of male maturation is every conception happens by choice. When that happens, there's no more need really for much, much abortion. And then that frees us up to allow those first three months to be filled with potential. And not only that, we have to uh, come to grips that, with that Freud pathologized the family. Mm -hmm. For three generations now, we've been trained to think that our family is the source of all of our problems. Mm. And it couldn't be any more the opposite. But the fact is, what, what we're, how we're trained to look at things, that's what we'll see. Okay, okay. So let me slow you down a little bit. I mean, so, so just to back up and, and go back to the stages of this, this progression, uh, because this affects the mind and the soul, as you said. What, I mean, what are the, some of the stages and energies that someone might experience in, in the times of, of this maturation as this happens? You know, we have, let's look at the word kundalini, because that's a, a, a new word. Uh, we don't really have a, a similar word in English. But uh, fathers and mothers at the moment of conception are given a boost of this creative energy. It's so powerful it can create new life. It's not, Kundalini is not just some kind of energy up the spine that transforms consciousness, sort of like a, a big hit of LSD. It's the, it's the very energy of gestation that makes a lot of humans come into uh, uh, you know, incarnation. So that would mean we're all born, we're all being conceived within an environment that mothers, you know, pregnant women and their partners, they're feeling sensations and they're letting their bodies move. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where yoga asanas originally came from, not just at the moments of pregnancy and just, you know, when parents were having kids. But any time you, you're inspired, uh, they called it get, being moved. The Holy Ghost is the version we, this is the name in Western religion. Uh, davening 
or spinal rocking prayer happens in Judaism. It's exactly the same as what they call zikr, Z-I-K-R, in Islamic religions. And it's why in, uh, all, the, all the meditation traditions have people sitting upright. Uh, you know, their spines are upright. Originally, it would be not by ego, but it would be upright just like a clitoris or nipples or a penis becomes upright when it's aroused. So we're, we're in a body that we've been blocked off from, uh, f- from these kinds of experiences happening to us. Pregnancy is very limited. People are concerned of whether they want to keep the pregnancy or not. It's all very kind of nerve wracking. Instead of predominantly tuning in, and, and people feel it, you know, there's some profound uh, um, connection to the source of, the, of all life. And likewise, that family is this amazingly beautiful thing, that the sensations that are happening between lovers will make them move, not just their hips, like in the movements of intercourse, but their tongues will move in new ways, uh, that their voices may break out into song, uh, that they start finding that what they want to talk about in ordinary daily life, 50% of the time is how much they love each other. It just feels like you're maybe Rumi. I use Rumi because most people have read him, and he, he had beautiful poems. They were just all love poems. We all feel like we've become Rumi. We have permission to live and think and, and talk to each other this way. Instead of processing, almost always refers to talking about problems, and that's a part of my, the, the, the Freudian theory was when you really talk about the truth, it's always going to be very problematic. So, so I mean, I mean, this this seems like it could be problematic for someone who doesn't know what Kundalini is. For, for I mean, an, an example for me when when I was in my early twenties. I experienced a Kundalini awakening. I had no idea what Kundalini was. People weren't talking about it on the internet. And it was the most horrifying and most beautiful experience simultaneously that I'd, I'd ever experienced. I mean, how would you say these people who are on this sort of mission to, quote, awaken their Kundalini, it, it seems like a very dangerous thing to delve into? One, uh, you know, it's hard for me to convey everything I mean when I say everything has to change. But in a way, that's why this is so challenging to talk about. But imagine a a culture in which where you had your experience and people were coming to receive your blessing. You have that same experience you had, but people are looking and feeling love from you that you you go off. I'm having this effect on them. I believe it. And, and then this has been going on for many uh, decades and centuries, really. So you, you, it's not odd. That, and, you're, and you're being respected and appreciated. I can't over-evaluate uh, uh, how powerful uh, the social factor is. Um, you can, uh, if you f- are looked at as if odd, it's very hard to free yourself that maybe you aren't odd. And a lot of me- uh, of. of problematic experience. Even talking about God in, 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 this, in the wrong environment, people will roll their eyes. They'll be embarrassed. That They'll think we're being sentimental. There's all different ways that talking about spiritual experiences, uh, it's gotten much, much better. 
But in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's, it's a challenge. Well, what if you replace all of that? And I've done this because I've had the uh, first spiritual emergence uh, therapy practice that goes back to 1977. Uh, is my responsibility since about 19, oh, around 1982, uh, the so-called Kundalini Clinic. And I, I will bow down to, to a client who comes in my door saying I'm having all these strange experiences. And I'll say, see how it feels differently if I honor you as having something holy going on, just like if you had said I'm pregnant, you might not know what it is if you then learn what it was. Right. People said, wow, this is a beautiful thing. It's not, you know, are you going to keep the baby or not? You know, they're not leaping into that question. They're saying this is holy and beautiful. Can I just kind of put my palm and my hands together and bow to you? That has a huge positive effect on my clients. And, it, and I can easily say, I've been, like I say, it's been since about 1980, 81. It's been like 30-some years. I have the most experience in a clinical setting with Kundalini awakening of anyone in the world. Uh, just, it just happened that I fell into this clinic way back in the beginning. It was getting calls uh, from people. And I could see that they, would, they landed in a different office of a psychiatrist. And they're talking about all these sensations. The psychiatrist is on edge main thing you worry about is do I hospitalize this person? Exactly. And, and I'll tell you, if you have that, I've had it in my mind. I was trained. If I'm looking at somebody, my God, can I handle this? Are they going to sue me? What am I going to do here? I better hospitalize, better safe than sorry. That vibe in the air is very what they call iatrogenic. means the doctor has a negative effect that makes things worse while trying to heal. Uh, if my people come in and I'm saying, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate that you're trusting me with it. I'm not looking at them like a problem. I'm not trying to diagnose and my colleagues still do. They're trying to decide if it's Kundalini or psychosis. You know, I've been doing this so long and they're not, they're still using material that's very psychiatric and I wanted to publish on it to get it all that I'm kind of spilling out with you right now into the public domain. For, for And with Kundalini Awakening, yeah, the psychiatric profession, they're moving a little tiny bit. And the psychological counselors, are they know the words, but they're not bowing to their clients. They're not uh, doing namaste. They're still trying to figure out if a person should go to a hospital or not. I can say this because I'm also the president of the, for 20 years. Uh, I just retired from the uh, professional psychologist group that specializes in these kinds of issues. So I've been, and I've been on the boards of several graduate schools, the California Institute of Integral Studies, where they're training people. And I know how little they are really progressing. They're still training people uh, to, is this guy's client uh, crazy or is it Kundalini? And that frame of mind is inadequate to helping people. You have to feel, yeah, it's uh, like you say, it's not that simple. But the first step is being greeted by someone who is confident, who's personally experienced it. That's also very rare. And for it to have gone well themselves. And then to notice moment to moment when you thank the person, they feel a little bit better. And then you make eye contact and they feel and you're smiling instead of looking suspicious they start feeling a little bit better. And then they smile, and then you smile a little bit more. So being in the here and now, as this positive shift happens, 
from, oh, I'm afraid what's going to happen to me when the client walks in the door first. Little by little, you're, you're watching the little changes and you're, by the 30th minute, things are very different. Yeah, I agree with you. And and there is such a large paradigm shift happening. And now, you know, as as this sort of revolution occurs, you know, we, we are seeing these people who are discussing Kundalini openly. And, you know, we have people like you who are writing books like this that that a person can, you know, easily access. Let's let's but let's back up a little bit. Let's get into um, male and female gender roles, and this this sort of sort of. I mean, the the way that you have written it in your book it couldn't be written any better. It just you talk about how gender is the sharing of mystery, and there is something profound that we're deeply sharing between the male and female, and how how we, this, this sort of opposition that, you know, our society has created between male and female, the feminism and the masculinity. And I mean, you connect those. And I, and, I, and when I reread the book, I, I just, you know, I connected with it even more. Can you get into that for us, please? Yeah, I would say we know that poetry will give us a different experience of watching a sunrise or a sunset than if we're looking at it as uh, astronomers. If we're trained to measure the light waves and the ultraviolet and the infrared and things like that, yeah, we'll get a certain kind of information. But if we're looking at it through the eyes of a musician or a poet, I, I hope that analogy gives us some sense of where I'm headed. We've been looking at gender very scientifically for at least 130, 40 years and trying to categorize people and get and do statistical studies of, of everything from um, masculinity to, and femininity to all kinds of gender uh, uh, identities. Um, and now we're at a very sophisticated level, but it's all very scientific of categorizing people into uh, transsexual and uh, all, all kinds of things that, we're, that are in the news today. My opinion, which I wrote about in great detail, and it goes back, I've written about this for 20 years, is we should have, at least part of the time, used poetry to look at gender and that we're sharing something far more profound than uh, science tends to to be able to talk about. In fact, the profundity is missed. In North Carolina, we have this horrific problem about, what is it about, um, uh, these transgender bathrooms. You know, imagine if we respected gender much more deeply as a mystery instead of categorizing people, we would be going, oh, my God, there's this mystery of gender. The body is one way. The identity is this way. And that we would be trying to figure out what bathroom people would be needing to use. There would be so much respect for the human being and for gender itself. The, uh, the last place you would take those questions would be into a legal environment and trying to f- figure out where people should go to the bathroom or not. And this traces all the way back uh, because it only gets deeper. We know that in utero, every one of us has both male and female genitalia. We know this, it, it, yet we don't think of ourselves this way at all. It's as if that, those first three months of our life didn't exist. We also have a bit of a tail that evaporates into the body 
at the base of the spine. That's quirky. But the fact that we have both male and female genitalia and the uh, one will fade away and we'll basically have one gender, uh, that's a profound mystery. In fact, the fact that we create life is a pretty profound mystery. Let's get into a little bit of how to, you know, like for a male and female couple that are kind of suffering from this disconnection through their sexuality and their gender. I mean, how can we elicit this sort of profoundity, this, I mean, this devotion that you speak of in the book and this, I mean, how can we get back to that revering state that we should be in? Beautiful. You know, on the one-to-one, it's very easy, I would say. It's right now we've been talking in massive numbers, like, you know, a billion people, all of the, everyone in America, you know, the whole state of North Carolina, you know, it's hard, it's unwieldy. But when you have a couple, it's as simple as asking them to, to tell as a therapist, and you can do this on your own, is I say, well, what do you love about each other? What have you ever loved about each other? And people can talk about it. It's that near at hand. I don't ask couples with, who obviously have problems. That's not my first question is, well, tell me about your problem. I say, tell me about what, when you've ever loved each other and what you admire and appreciate and respect about each other. And people will uh, have memories at the very least. Uh, of, I love that you're generous. I love that you're funny. I love that you care about your friends. I love the way that you um, care about food. There's lots of compliments. What I've learned is it doesn't matter if the compliment is pretty mundane. Uh, I, I like that you're punctual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People could be the most mundane compliment. It really doesn't matter. That's where spirituality is such an important word. It, it's the spirit that we listen to each other. The, the content could be very mundane. And what will happen is people will smile. When they're given a compliment, I mean, I'm not, I sound like this is not rocket science at all, but that's what I wanted to share with you. It, it is sad. It's so near at hand. But very few therapists, I would say less than 1% of therapists, begin a, a marriage session asking, what do you love about each other? They talk about the problems. They're lucky if they ever get to it. Now, the problem also is, even after they're talking about what they love about each other, I can tell... They could be helped in hearing it and believing with these compliments more deeply. And they can be helped by a third person saying, take a look at your partner, because people don't always look at the person that's speaking to them. And I'll see the tear in their eye when they give a compliment. Or I remember when we first met, it was so beautiful. And I'll say to the other one, you should take a look at your, your, uh, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. And then they'll say, oh, wow, you're right. I see that look in their eye. And guess what happens? This is Tantra. Tantra is reverberation. As soon as the one sees it in their partner's eyes, their eyes start to look different. Their eyes start to glow. And then I'll say to these other partner, take a look. Your, 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 your boyfriend here is, is just saw the look on your face and look at how they look. And the woman, the partner will look and go, oh, my God, his eyes are filled with feeling. And it's subtle, but the amazing thing the subtle changes of of this of the moisture in the eye has a huge effect on us. I mean, what is what is in your, what is the divorce rate in America right now? Well, uh, it's uh, between forty and seventy percent. Wow! Uh, because of of you know, it only gets worse. The first um, divorce uh, rates of the first marriage are between forty and fifty percent, depending on the ethnic group. But the second uh, marriage divorce rate is uh, up to closer to sixty percent. 
And the third marriage rate is closer to 70%. The next time, the next time that someone asks me why I'm not married, I think I'm going to scream. I, I just, you know, I, in your book, you talk about this. I mean, you talk about marriage as this, this sort of mystery and, you know, this profound thing. And I, I agree, it is this profound, beautiful, you know, happy moment. I just, I mean, I feel like the 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 game has changed the dating game has changed uh women's roles have changed gender roles have changed so i mean it, marriage is different i mean which is why these these statistics that you just mentioned are are astronomical and and i'm not sure i mean i mean as you said earlier i think it it's going to take a paradigm shift for for this to get better. If you can learn to look at someone for about 10 seconds longer while they're complimenting you, you're going to have a different, you're going to have a very bonding experience that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Uh, If you're not looking for 10 seconds, that's how trivial I think I've seen it over 40 years of a therapist and people don't connect. They're all ready to worry about breaking up. So to sustain a compliment for five minutes, it's very rare. And then to, to, for the other person to give back a compliment and for them to have eye contact and then to be given permission to touch the other person's cheek. And then the other person is smiling and blushing and then saying, look at how beautiful you are. And then being able to tell people, if you talk like this with each other for an hour a day, you're going to be very happy. And if you uh, I can teach you how to talk about problems in slow motion, people, yeah, they're all skittish. Uh, they're, they're looking for someone, something that they now feel doesn't really exist, so they're prepared for it not to work instead of preparing to want to learn more. It turns out to be very easy, uh, whatever the problem is, how to say thank you. you know, if someone says, how come you fucking forgot my birthday or something like that? And the other person saying, well, lay off. Hey, man, hey, hey, wait, slow down. The person can say, thank you for telling me. That's uh, empathy instead of defensiveness. That is a huge skill that can make a relationship last years longer than it would otherwise. So these are simple communication skills that are, once you start getting good at it, you really can. Somebody complains about you, instead of fighting back, the first thing you can say is thank you. And guess what? The other person, I train them to say, you're welcome. And I'm troubled to charge people Sometimes $250 an hour if I'm, you know, seeing a divorce-bound couple because they're paying $600 an hour for their lawyers. You know, I, I save their marriage. You know, sometimes it's, it can, you know, it's saving them a lot of money. But, but what I'm charging them for is to say thank you and you're welcome. And when they, when they believe me, I'm an old man. I'm 67. I've been doing this for 43 years. I've finally given myself, not finally, over the years, I had to believe my own results. And so that confidence fills the room. I'm training people in their 30s and 40s to borrow from my experience that, yes, saying thank you when the problem is, uh, is uh, given to you, and then for the other person to say you're welcome, it starts shifts the whole conversation from the bad box to something that is welcome and appreciated, whatever the problem is. And I, you know, we don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty of all kinds of problems, but whether it's affairs or problems with money or how people just make decisions and, and dominate each other, uh, that's what the, that book, uh, Advanced Intimacy, and also my other book, Words from the Soul, goes into in infinite detail. 
So, I mean, the new world of erotica, I mean, you're ripping each other's clothes off, you're clawing and pounding in bed, you're spinning into it, each other and in, in cascades of, of emotion. And I mean, all of this energy is exchanged and passion. I mean, I, I feel like for me, they, I can't have casual sexual encounters. And for me, it, it, it has to be connected in this way. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm glad to hear it, you know, and I'm sure you know you're saying something that not everyone shares. And I think it comes out of hopelessness that, that they'd rather have a one-night stand than a no one-night stand. And so, yeah, to wait and or to it, uh, unfold with meaning, yeah, I think it's uh, uh, exactly what I'm talking about. But and then to have two people from date one um, be open at least to 20 dates, let's say, instead of like two or three, I, there was some common gossip that if you didn't get laid in the first 10 minutes and go, go to bed with someone and you know, leave the bar, you should leave, find a different person to sit next to in the bar <laughs> because 10 minutes, is, you, you'll know if the person's hot or not. What so, a tragedy. Sorry to interrupt you. I mean, it's, it's tragic. It's like, it, I mean, where did, how did we end up on this planet? I mean, it both, it's both beautiful and cru- crucifying at the same time, because for the masses and for most people, like you said, I mean, the hookup is the sort of natural default uh, role way to go. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I just I, I feel really passionate about this just because I I experienced this and I you know I relationships for me have I mean in the last in the last since we last talked and we we talked in July so 9 months ago I mean it, I have experienced two women who entered my life that told me that I was their soulmate um those rela- relationships ended within a couple months. So you know, I, it, I'm not sure the passion was there. Everything was there, but, um, it just, I mean, the, the relationship didn't hold. It felt like it burnt out. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's cultural. You can't blame anyone in particular. Uh, in the old days, you know, it was maybe the pendulum was at the other end. Um, before you, uh, ask somebody out, you know, you talk to their parents, get permission. And then that was already, well, you're probably going to marry each other, you know, so that's the pendulum is at the other end. Um, But here, yeah, I think we definitely have to believe kind of me as an elder saying, if you are giving compliments to each other and thanking each other for small things and big things, you know, 30, 40% of the time, and then carefully talking about any negative problems and careful. I gave you an outline is to say, thank you. And you're welcome after basically after each verbal exchange of, you know, uh, I'm afraid that it's not working. And then you say, thank you for telling me. And the other one says, you're welcome. And I know that wasn't easy, you know, tell me more about why isn't it working? Well, you know, I'm not sure about this and this. And eventually you have to get to a point where you say, well, let's try a number of things. Uh, let's try spending, and, not, and it really should be more time together rather than less. Uh, let's, uh, you know, and do some experiments, whether it's taking a massage class together or uh, create a, a favorite thing is an, for young, new, new relationships, is make an altar that has all the ticket stubs from every concert you went to 
and maybe napkin from fancy meals that you've had or stones that you picked up at the beach when you walk and create, give yourself a chance to create uh, a, a stockpile of memorabilia that, that makes you smile about the best things that happened and then talk about that a lot. Oh, yeah, I love that we have an altar that collects all those things. And I put something new on it today. Uh, and the other one says, yeah, I know, I saw it. So you have to load up the positive in a very creative way. You know, when people start a, a startup business, they don't mess around. They plan in advance. They don't just let it go willy-nilly. They have a very important game plan how they spend their money and set up their office. You know, we, we should borrow that type of creativity in uh, early relationships. And what it boils down to is, yeah, lots of compliments and gratitude and then gestures. And uh, you talk about the great gesture, right? Yeah. Then there is, you know, I, I was beginning with the a, a more expansive eroticism, which you can't ignore. The verbal is great. That's what I was sharing with you. But um, in, the, in terms of the sexual uh, interaction, like I said, to have the, the, the male uh, be uh, physically relaxed, let's, let's say, so the ejaculation doesn't even have to come once a year. I mean, that sounds pretty radical. But even hours of sex, uh, you, you know, and the ejaculation is just replaced with uh, high states of pleasures. Female uh, is different. Why does that happen? Why is, why is not ejaculating so important? Well, it's, it's, it's at least it's something that people have heard, so I'm not, you know, it's not rejected out of hand. But what does happen is that desire becomes uh, types of play and worship. And so instead of the, the, like you say, the tearing each other's clothes off and then coming, uh, it's tearing clothes off and then what? Uh, uh, um, rubbing spine, the, each other's spines while you're having intercourse. And then rubbing the throat, each other's throats, and you start to feel that you're actually having kind of cum in your throat muscles, in your saliva. And you start to feel, why? Why didn't anybody ever teach us this? And then you look into the yoga books, and that's all they talk about in in kundalini yoga is nectar, amrita, madhu, uh, uh, ojas, uh, retas, which is this urvaretas, or seed uh, power. The, the, the puberty of the throat and the mind and the heart, you start tasting it. Uh, and so it's not just all genital centric. And, and the kissing becomes more profound. Like you, you, you kiss is sweeter than wine. We've heard that uh, goes back to the Old Testament, I think. You know, and you start to get into it more. It's like, wow, we've been living on a little one inch square of this huge universe. And so now the, the sexual relationship Uh, just that the pure expansiveness of it is different than what people are saying to each other. Yeah, someone will say, I'm your soul, and I think we're soulmates. And then you look at each other eye to eye and and see the effect that that has and talk about that for a while. And when the way the penis is licked, if it's a soulmate, if we're going to use that kind of language, we we should feel more with that person. What does that mean? We feel their fertility. This is a huge piece of the puzzle, uh, whether for gay people, straight, whatever gender identity, is we have to reinfuse the human body with the power of fertility. Even if there's no, and, and especially that there is no ejaculation in the male, it's deeper than the ejaculation. The fact that uh, men and women or gay or straight or transgendered 
whatever the gender, that's the word itself, gener generative. Gender has to do with generativity. And that's the deepest mystery on the planet. How did you and I get born? How did, how did we get here? And you start to have to learn from, from right from like kindergarten level right now. We don't even know what gender means. It's a generativity. It's not. And so you, when you touch a penis or, or a pussy, you're feeling this is where life comes from. You could start crying. The woman could start crying. It's not about just pleasuring. It's, mm -hmm. it's the meaning of what a penis is or a scrotum or a, a, a breast or a pussy, or you name it, the, the, the <laughs> hum, you know, everything is completely elevated into what it actually obviously is. These are life-giving things. Yeah. And, and so it's not just, oh, it feels good. It, 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 it traces back to the chicken and the egg problem. Your mother that, and father felt like this, and then you got conceived. Well, their parents, your grandparents, and great, 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 and you start to feel in real terms, it's not just enough to be present. Being present is the shallowest conception, the shallowest way that I certainly have ever heard enlightenment be defined. The ability to be present. It is the most shallow and obvious thing to say be present. But somehow our new age uh, folk are completely enamored by this word, oh, I'm really just going to be present. Now, being present is very, very deep. It's, you start to feel... You're looking at the child of who may be 35 years old, you know, of a parent who was also the child of a, a parent, a grandpa. And you start feeling, and if you get, think evolutionarily, you know, we trace back to the beginning of time. But you start feeling what the heck is going on here is a very big present. It's a very long, long present that has no beginning. And then you start to be uh, in the mystery. You, know, you start feeling the power of what it is to be a human being. I mean, when it gets like this, I'll give you one example in, in political terms. You start, big problems start to crumble. The small problem of, is this guy enough for me? Oh, I said he was my soulmate, but now I'm not so sure. That is a very easy problem to solve. I mean, you, you've used this trigger word for me, this soulmate thing. I have many questions about this, and I'm, I'm going to try to wrap it into one. I mean, it how how does a person recognize a soulmate where i mean how how do we kind of identify because there are definitely women that i encounter that i i feel zero connection to that there there's a very plastic sort of surface attraction but that's it and then there are women that i encounter that i am hopelessly enamored by like every movement that they make is just and, and I would refer to that as a sort of soulmate thing. And usually it's a, it's a recognition that happens for me within the eyes and I see it, but then, but isn't your soulmate supposed to stay with you for the rest of your life? I mean, are, are there different types of soulmates? Sorry, that's like four or five questions. Yeah. You know, uh, uh initial moment of attraction is uh, wonderful you know i would say it's it's good part of of, of becoming you know of, of keeping growing as a person that more people more women make us feel that way rather than less hopefully you know just in terms of you know i think about my history of of, of america you know uh, i was i'm jewish and my 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 friend group back in the 50s uh were gentile and they were all trained that a jew could never be your boyfriend 
And that's how that was the 50s and 60s. That idea is gone. It doesn't really matter uh, that I'm Jewish or someone is uh, Catholic or whatever different religion. But there were there were filters. We all have our filters that still persist and we should be able to uh, outgrow them like weight. At some point in time, I said, I'm getting I'm going to break free of this concern about body body size. And I realized I had been prejudiced or trained my whole life to look only at slim women. And then I found, wow, what a limitation. It's not only religion and race, mixed marriages. They were, they were never – mixed dating didn't even exist in my high school in the 50s and 60s. You know, so we get a generalization that we could all get better at, at being moved by more people. Now, after that, if two people are smiling at each other, it's really the ability to, to – two parts, if I break it up, you know, is verbal and the realm of touch or nonverbal. And the verbal realm is to be able to uh, uh, ask questions about each other, listen and ask more questions, give compliments, um, feel the, receive the compliments, and then allow the attention to focus on that one person. Most people, even while they're in a, date, a dating situation with someone, uh, whether it's due to Facebook or all kinds of social things that now exist, they're still looking, and the mind is uh, uh, not focused. I think that's why the word present is so powerful. At least you're going to focus on what's right in front of you instead of daydreaming. But the fact is uh, we live at a time of very short attention span. That's probably why meditation is so interesting. It, it, it helps people because we have a cultural problem with uh, attention more than probably more than one minute. And so the mind... Uh, is thinking about other people, comparing. And so we really have to help each other and make space, you know, and then we, the reverse happens. How about polyamory? How about lots of relations? That very complicated situation, not impossible, not, uh, uh, you know, can be very beautiful. But uh, just to focus on each other with more and more attention, compliments, going slowly with any kind of fears and concerns, and I would say we almost all need, including myself, to go to a third person from time to time, whether it's in the family or a friend or a professional that believes in marriage or, or at least in relationship, to get some help. And then uh, you, you practice, you know, and, and it could be sexually, too, of learning uh like I say, these different ways of touching each other. Sir, I mean, are you are you talking about? I'm not sure if you answered my question. Are you talking about fostering the connection between someone else and and creating a soulmate, or are you talking about rec the recognition that that comes because we are somehow intrinsically intertwined with this other part of our own souls that that is incarnate here? Yeah, I, I learned the hard way that it's a creative act. That, that you know, I would meet clients in the you know. 40, 30 and 40 years ago, and I would think, oh, how could they work it out? And then I'd see they would work it out. <laughs> and other couples, I thought it should be together, they would break up. So, you know, I really had to see it much more as a creative act. And uh, when you let it in that somebody's working on it uh, uh, to love you more, it's very powerful. You know, uh, you know I, I think of uh, Leo DeRocher, who was a coach for the, uh, the, the uh, Dodgers baseball team. He said, uh, you know, natural athletes only go so far because they don't know how to create anything better than what God gave them. The, the super baseball athletes were not natural athletes. 
They, but they learned how to get them. They, they had to do uh, the, the, the culturing of themselves, uh, and they never stopped. They all they knew how to culture. Natural athletes never do it. They just get up there and they have a natural ability. Same thing that your question is getting at. Yeah, soulmate is a goal that two people, uh, hopefully, in the, they have a you know in the beginning some connection, flirtation. But the differences come up. You know, intellectual values, how you want to spend time and money. Uh, all the differences start coming up. You have to want something more, hmm. and that more is the deepest name is, is soul to soul. Because soul level is uh, we're the most we're trying to say the, the most profound, the most beautiful part of each other, and it doesn't. It, it's equal to all the problems of life. You know, uh, Christ on the cross was thinking of his soul, and he could uh, die up there without getting angry, and he could forgive people. Because he was awake to the soul, Buddha, same thing. He awakens to the soul, and his uh, all the, you know, uh, uh, enlightenments came to him so that he could die peacefully. You know, w- the soul identity is is uh, it kind of that it, it does, it's equal to the biggest challenges of life. That's what it should mean. But a little bit of attraction. That's all that I would say. Not a little bit. A significant amount of attraction, and the two people within a month or two. Uh, even really within a, a, a couple of weeks, they're feeling, you know, very in the honeymoon period, you know, to help them perpetuate the honeymoon period is not that hard. It's really not that hard. That's the irony of it. You know, it feels like a lot of this just takes a lot of gratitude, understanding, patience, and just pure, genuine love. Like actually wanting to to work on the relationship, actually wanting to solve the problems versus running away, which is I feel like in our in our current culture, it it feels like women are looking to upgrade and it's like the next best thing. Or if if there's a problem, it's not, oh, that I love you, but more that oh, how does this affect my life? And is this, is this going to make things more difficult for me? And can I deal with it? And do, do I care about this person enough? And somehow, somehow it's rationalized that, you know, divorce is an easier option and it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it's, it's really tragic. And it can be with people with a six-month-old new baby. Uh, there's just absolutely, in my opinion, uh, a complete shallowization of eye contact, of what a newborn baby can do for a couple, of what a touch can mean, of how much how shoddy our ability to complement each other is. Like right now, I can shift for a moment. You are such a sincere human being, Xavier. You you, you are asking me questions because you actually want things to happen in your life. I can tell you directly. No, very rare am I interviewed where someone puts their own their own flesh in the, into the interview. I, I think I probably had you know a hundred interviews with this book, and maybe there's five or three or four really where someone was putting their own relationship into the conversation. And I can just tell you, I very much respect and admire that you you take our time that seriously. I'm touched. Wow. Well, um, I really thank you, man. I really, really appreciate that. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll, t- we'll see you. No, I'm just kidding. I, we've got, we've got about eight minutes left here. Uh, Stuart, I, you know, I, 
I'm so I'm deeply touched by this book. I think that with my next relationship, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to hand that woman this this book, and I'm going to say, please read this, just because it. I mean, it's it's everything that I've needed to know, wanted to know, wished that I knew, you know, for years and years, and. And and yeah, you know, bringing you onto the show was partially selfish just because I connected with it so much. But I mean, just from the response of, of the people who heard our first interview and the, the amount of emails that I got, I mean, it was just other people are recognizing this as well. And, you know, Tantra is is getting bigger. Yoga is getting bigger. Meditation is getting bigger. Find, finding your mind, mindfulness, it, people are accepting Eastern mythology and pr- starting to practice it. Yeah. You know, and, you know, going further, you know, uh, if we had a hundred people gathered together and the synergy of that conversation, like what you and I are now having, that is a huge contribution to success of, a, of relationships, is creating a peer group. Uh, I found that to be true in my practice when I would create a, a small group of like right now I have 20 people. One couple will tell their story. They've been married 20 years in an affair, just about blew them apart, and we got them through it. They're more in love than ever. And then the other couples are going, well, I never heard of such a thing. I guess there must be hope for us. And so the peer group of, of different degrees of, you know, of um, experienced uh, uh, couples, you guys start helping each other. And then it starts be- becoming clear. It's not my book. It's not just some point of view. It's a real thing that people make their way and we help each other. A room full of 100 people, uh, uh, two to three years in a row into the future, you start having stories go back and forth. Until I would say maybe you know we can work towards a close of our of our time together, but it starts to be as far as the eye can see, it sees ninety percent happy, long term couples. You've got a microcosm, and that, this just happens to be most of the world throughout most of history. It was really only since Freud uh, that, that made shallowized uh, uh, human love as a mere biological thing that it started <laughs> going downhill. And hooking up is the perfect. You know, exam, you know, f- final termination of that thinking. But mm-hmm. you create a hundred people week. I'm seeing it right now. Several couples when they tell their story, yeah, we were going to break up. They, we've got kids, but we learned to slow it down and thank each other a lot and look at each other eye to eye and prolong our erotic contact, contact, and feel we were connected to our parents and grandparents and great great grandparents. And they start to get this whole new world. And like I say, it's China. They're all like this. In India, I'm revered because I'm just revering what they do. They have a 2% divorce rate in India, you know, and so it's 25, 30 times less than what it is in America. It's a huge difference. You know, as far as the eye can see, yeah, if I could do that in my lifetime, uh, the next 10 years, let's say, uh, have 100 people and they're all supporting each other, I think it would be sustaining. The next uh, generation, that, that 100 would give rise to 500. And then uh, further down, it, it would be just like the negative contagion of fear and doubt and, and hookups and nothing works. It, you would reverse the spiral and it would uh, create, uh, uh, I believe, getting up to an 80 percent lifelong marriage rate. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. St- the stories start coming up. We believe what, we're, what we start seeing. That's the bigger picture. 
You know, I, I really, I really dig your perspective and I, I, I believe in it. You know, I, I, I feel like I will eventually, you know, see that at least in my own life, you know, where the person that I commit myself to, you know, I, I it's going to be that type of connection where, you know, it, it, it is love and, and true love and, and not something that I'm bailing out of you know, at the first sign of an issue. Um, you've got, you've got some events coming up that, I mean, aren't, aren't you traveling and, and you, you're doing a summit somewhere, right? Well, many things. I just finished something in South, uh, online, but via South Africa, uh, the Soul Summit. If, if you go to my Facebook page under my name, you'll see all my events. Uh, this next week, I'll spend a week in Florida. I'm in California now. Uh, leading Tantra retreats in uh, Central Florida. Okay, what part of Florida? What's, uh, Orlando? The, uh, a little bit north. It's called the Amrit Yoga Institute in Salt Springs in the Ocala State Forest. I'll be there uh, next week for for, for about a, uh, almost two weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, AmritYogaInstitute.org. You know, you can read all about it. And then in September, I'm going to be in Romania uh, giving a major, giving the keynote to uh, all European uh, spiritual psychologists, uh, and my topic is the future of love, in which I'm mainly going to tell all the all my friends there how much I love them, and uh, no no keynote has ever been given that way for like a half an hour. I'm just going to look at all the people and tell them, and I'm going to say, keep doing this. That's the future, and that will be your future. And then I'll talk about a few things about the spinal puberty. So that's at the end of September. Then in October, I'm taking uh, up to 20 people to India to two incredibly powerful uh, Shiva uh, Tantra temples where we want to get some of the, that deep energy. Hmm. Wow. Of cool. course, somebody can email me and I'm happy to Skype, do Skype sessions with people. I do them all over the world with all kinds of people. What is, what is your website that people can get to? Uh, if, you, if you Google my name, Stuart Savatsky, uh, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll quickly get stuartsavatsky.com. But Facebook is really my most powerful teaching medium. So if people just look your name up, Stuart Savatsky on, on Facebook, they can message you, add you as a friend, message you there. Exactly. Perfect. Stuart, I, I really am I'm very thankful for your time, sir. Thank you so much for, for coming back, sharing your perspective, writing this book. Um, yeah, man, I, I really appreciate it. Well, you're totally welcome. And like I, I said, I, I really meant everything I said. And um, you're a beautiful guy to even open yourself up. You hardly know me, um, but you, you want the real thing. And I'm touched by that. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, this is the human experience. We are going to get out of here. We will see you guys next week. All right, Stuart. So we're, we're coming back on here and you mentioned this, you mentioned that you wanted to do some, some chanting. Yeah. I want to do a direct energy transmission beyond words and it's just totally vibratory. So uh, for about the next four or five minutes, just to close your eyes and relax and listen.
Wow. So that you can see is a whole other realm of, of, of interview. <laughs> if you had done it, you wouldn't know it existed. Wow. I mean, I, I'm sure the audience is really going to appreciate that story. Thank you so much for sharing that, man. All right, guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the little extra chant there at the end. Um, you can find Stuart by getting on Facebook and searching his name, Stuart Savatsky. Thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs>